0: I'm Ron Aaron along with our co-host Carol Zerniel. Carol, as many of you know who listen to this show, serves as executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation. She also is the chair of the National Council on Aging's board of directors and does a lot of speaking here and across the country on issues involving seniors and caregiving. And we're delighted to come to you every Sunday at 6 p.m. right here on 930 AM, The Answer. One of our very special guests will be coming up in a couple of moments, Carol Levine from United Hospital Fund's Family and Healthcare Project. Well, they did an interesting study on why folks who need home health care services Turn it down.
1: Well, I, you know, this is a classic problem. I mean, I might actually be wealthy if I had a dollar for every time a caregiver said, What do I do? My loved one refuses services. So the issue, uh, particularly, you know, we're talking about people coming out of a hospital, you know, who require uh, skilled care that are refusing the services. Um, and can end back up in a hospital or end up in the hospital by turning them down, and then who picks up that slack? The family caregiver. Right. So it's a real problem, and it—I don't think anyone has really looked at this in depth before. Well, that's so, the beauty
0: of Carol Levine. Well, I was going
1: to say, leave it to Carol Levine to to you know hear that little something out in the community and decide. Well, let's open that and let's turn that rock over.
0: Meanwhile, you came up with a very interesting topic to toss out, and it makes me think about uh, the other night. We have, as you know, twins who are four years old. Our little boys just turned four, and one of them, Carter, turned to us the other night and he said, you know, I'm going to go live with my other family. (laughs) Oh, oh. said, really? Really? What family is that? I'm not going to tell you. So what makes for a happy life? The other family?
1: (laughs) I was going to say... Wow. I can remember my next-door neighbor, to, you know Penny, who lived next door was a year older than me when I was four, to, uh, convincing me that we had to run away. Really? Yes, and I packed my suitcase, and I was just devastated that I was going to have to leave my family <laughs> and go find some other family. And I packed my little suitcase and went outside, and she told me her parents wouldn't let her leave the house. So I was so happy that <laughs> that she so funny. she never made it out the front door, and I was packed and ready to go. Penny said go. We wow. were going. Yeah, well, we so see. let him pack his suitcase and walk out the door. Well, we said to him, <laughs> him,
0: do you have any money, Carter? He said, no. I said, it's going to be tough out there. Oh, okay. okay. And then he just went on to something else. <laughs>
1: yeah, really. Yeah, that's it. That's a scary thing. So, so what does so make for a happy this life? This is from Harvard. What, what, not running away, actually, probably makes for a happy life. Um, but this is based on <laughs> research. Uh, and so lesson number one in having a happy life is that Okay, listen up to your for your four year olds. A happy childhood matters. Wow. Um so those of us who are fortunate and I know your kids are fortunate oh, uh, regardless of the threat to I was go a lucky to one. the other family um you know those of us that had a happy childhood are you know we really do get that good foundation we we've had a sample of what a good family life should be not that our families are perfect right none of us have perfect families um but basically we were happy and you know well cared for and safe if you have that that really is factor number 1 Uh, in a happy life so the way you start out it you know and for those of you who didn't have a happy childhood you know that it has affected I mean it impacts your whole life.
0: I had a Norman Rockwell kind of family life I was just lucky. Yeah my sister and I used to say we we
1: didn't know we had a perfect childhood until we got older and started comparing notes with people who really had some tough backgrounds.
0: And I thought it was cool that Carter was confident enough uh, to be able to say I'm going to go live with another family and not worry about it. That's right. That we're not going to jump his butt.
1: Right and yeah and so you handled it and we well. We laughed about it. Yeah. Yeah and, and well, <laughs> don't forget your toothbrush. Um, exactly. So number two is if you didn't have a happy childhood, fostering the welfare of the next generation. So in other words, if you didn't have a good childhood, apparently if you help the next generation of children have a better life, you being a teacher, being a coach, you know, being a mentor, that helping somebody else have a good childhood. Apparently, it takes some of the sting out of what huh. you didn't have. It's a good way to process it because you're fixing something for somebody else that you can't really fix for yourself. But it's kind of passing it along, paying so give it back. Hard. Yeah, so giving back and, and and doing it the way you would you know you would have liked it to have been done to you. That's cool. You know, really helps. Um, and and helping other people, you know that that uh, refills your emotional reservoir as well. Um learning to cope with stress effectively now we has lifelong benefits and we talk a lot about stress on this show
0: well because caregivers have a lot of stress
1: and and they're saying well, so what is it dealing with stress effectively um and i know we've talked to jamie about our, our friend dr jamie heisman who does take 10 about denial um and here it is that for you know have you ever brought a problem up to your boss and the boss just doesn't want to hear it, doesn't want to do anything about it, let's just bury it. Um and then what happens? Nothing good comes of, of you know right. not admitting that there's a problem.
0: Yeah, the cock hits the fan.
1: Yeah, so you know, if you are one of those people that leans into the problem, that tackles the toughest thing in the day first, that tackles the problem, you know, says, "All right, this is a problem. Let's deal with it. Let's go." Um, that that's a, a sets a good stage for dealing with stress effectively throughout your life is not being afraid to face challenges, as unpleasant as that can be. Um, the other thing for a happy life, breaking those bad habits, the earlier the better. So this is the smoking. You know, the sooner you stop smoking, the better it is. The sooner you start exercising, the better it is for you. So all of us have some bad habits. You know, I had to kick my little—I was only drinking a little tiny Coke a day, those little 7-ounce ones, (laughs) the little tiny ones, one a day. So my husband says, you know that that's 12 pounds a year? That you have to exercise off. I said, what did you say? He goes, that little seven ounces of Coke means that you have to exercise off 12 pounds a year. Because it's
0: all sugar. Because
1: it's all sugar. I right. was like, you've got to be kidding me. Thank you,
0: Ernie. Yes,
1: <laughs> yes. And so that was a real eye-opener. And so gone are the little tiny ones, much less the big ones at the movie theater, which I really love the giant Coke and a giant popcorn, i got to tell you. But it's not a good deal. You know. Water's friend, okay. It's
0: okay. I have a friend here who shall remain... Nameless, who's a local TV news anchor who drinks a 44-gulp every single day filled with soda.
1: Well, and, you know, your brain loves that. All that sugar, it's so bad for your brain, but your brain just is like, oh, yeah, bathe me in that (laughs) sugar. Give me more. Give me more of that. You know, it hits all those centers and that sugar rush. I mean, you know, for those people who are sensitive to sugar highs and lows, it's like all your – my mother would say all of your molecules line up. You know, all of a sudden you feel good, you got some caffeine, you got some sugar, life is good, until an hour later when bloop, all that sugar runs away right, and then you don't drops. feel so good. Yeah, you exactly. Get sugar blues or you have that slump. So yeah, it can be, you know, the sugar stuff can put you on a real roller coaster. Um, and then lesson number five, and this is the last one, is, you know, times with others is what brings us happiness. I mean, in general, that all those studies on social isolation uh, and being alone and there all the studies that show that developing social networks and we're not talking about Facebook friends that you really don't know. We're talking about flesh and blood people that you actually spend time with.
0: That's one of the things that's so neat walking into some of the Wellman Senior Centers when you see how folks actually connect there.
1: Well, and recently we had... Uh, uh, a national organization, come down and, and talk to our members. And so I just was hanging out to hear what, you know, they responded. And most of the members didn't even know I was in charge of the senior centers. You know, they were like, are, you know, are you, are you his assistant? <laughs> All right. And I was like, I'm here to help out. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, <laughs> several of them broke down in tears talking about how someone had died, they were alone in the community, they'd had bad health, they couldn't get out, um, and that that seniors, just that experience of being with other seniors who were willing and accepting and happy to see them and and became their new family, you know, changed their life, really turned their lives around. And so, you know, I tell my staff, never underestimate the power of just you and your voice. Listening to someone, acknowledging them, being with them, uh, spending time with them, that's probably one of the single best things that you can do.
0: That's pretty cool. Carol Levine joins us in a couple of moments talking about another important topic, uh, why some folks who need home health care. Turn it down. We'll talk with her in just a few minutes right here on Caregiver SOS on air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel on 930 AM, The Answer. Now, you've taken a look at My Medicare Matters, a number of uh, interesting topics on that website like mental health issues.
1: Well, my you know, Medicare Matters, I do have to put in a plug for the National Council on Aging. My Medicare Matters is a program of the National Council on Aging. It's a wonderful site for Medicare questions to help guide you through Choosing the right Medicare plan for you, and you know, with the ins and outs of Medicare, because nothing could be more confusing. But they have recently, because there are some mental health benefits in Medicare, uh, they have recently partnered with the Mental Health America to provide some um, information sheets on some really key mental health problems that are very common for older adults. So, um, depression in older adults is really common and really a huge. Issue.
0: And suicide, men 65 and over.
1: That's right. The, the highest completion rate uh, for suicides are
0: among older men. And completion rate means they actually kill themselves. They,
1: they're successful because, you know, usually it's firearms um, right. or a car exhaust or something. I mean, they, they pick something that's going to work. Uh, and so, depression, it, they've got a, a worksheet on depression and symptoms of depression. So, you know, what to look for and then the risk factors of depression. And, I, and one of the things, you know, people that have diabetes often have depression with the diabetes. People that have chronic health conditions. So, if you're a caregiver and your loved one has lung disease, heart disease, diabetes, you know, it. It's hard to deal with a chronic condition day after day after day, and it's not unusual for depression to sit in. So, you know, we need to recognize that. Sometimes uh, we can do support groups. Sometimes we need therapy. Sometimes we need medication. If untreated depression uh, can really take down your immune system, and you may need uh, a a serious intervention. Don't underestimate depression.
0: Now, before we talk to Carol Levine, I want you to squeeze in something about Brain Savers and the upcoming caregiver, caregiver teleconnection.
1: Well, our caregiver teleconnection um, is the it's free, free pro, service. It's the free service on the phone experts. On June 26th, Dr. Paul Benheim, who is a neurologist, is going to talk about how do we preserve our brain health as we age. And all of us who are caregivers and all of us um, who are care recipients, everyone is worried about our brain health. He is excellent. He's wonderful. Uh, Developed the Brain Savers program that we use in our senior centers um, and around the country. You don't have to be a senior to want to take care of your brain and have good brain health. So June 26th, uh, check out caregiversos.org and enroll for Dr. Benheim.
0: Your brain goes everywhere you go.
1: It does go everywhere you go. It's amazing. Funny how that works. Carol Levine
0: is next on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron with Carol Zerniel on 930 AM, The Answer. It's hard to believe, but this all began in the year 2010.
2: Has it really been that long that we've Dr. been together? Dr. Robin
0: Eickhoff, Ron Aaron, med Radio.
2: What a terrific ride it's been.
0: And since then, and continuing, we have talked about everything.
2: We've talked about medical issues, we've talked about legal issues, end-of-life issues, and the list goes on.
0: You name a disease, and we've covered it uh, with answers for people who have it, aimed primarily at seniors and their loved ones. Well, we're delighted you are riding along with us here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zernial. You hear us on 9.30 a.m. The Answer, Sundays at 6 p.m. And as we promised, Carol Levine is joining us. She directs the United Hospital Fund's Families and Health Care Project. And at uh, not too many years ago was a MacArthur Award winner, which always... Uh, Makes me so proud to have a chance to talk with Carol when she joins us. And a couple of years ago, she was one of our guest speakers at the uh, special symposium that the Woman Charitable Foundation puts on every year on caregiving.
1: Yeah, and, and I would say car- Carol is, has more frequent flyer miles on Caregiver SOS, I think, than any <laughs> other guest, so we welcome you back.
0: Thank you. I'm always happy to, to be here. And you have just come out with a, a really interesting uh, report that takes a look at an issue that is going to be growing more and more. I can take care of myself, thank you very much. A refusal of services by those who probably need the service. The
1: especially uh, Specifically home health care. Yes. Which I thought was just fascinating. So how in the world did you convene, come to convene a roundtable and come up with this report on refusal of services?
3: Um, well, this came about um, as I... I've been around the country um, talking to groups of of healthcare professionals and and uh, family caregivers. I have been hearing, no matter where I went, I'm hearing the stories from uh, from both sides that um, they were. not getting any help at home. So, wait a minute, were, were, wasn't your family member eligible for some home health care? And I so, said, oh, yeah, he was eligible, all right, but he said, no way, no strangers in my house. And, and every time I repeated that in a conference or something, people would shake their heads. Yeah, I know that story. So I was then asked uh, to talk with uh, at a group of... Um, home healthcare care agencies and the director at the time of the Alliance for Home Health Quality and Innovation was Teresa Lee and I mentioned this to her and she said oh that's a very big problem from our side in other words the agency side I said okay Teresa let's find out what's going on here and so we worked together to bring together the people who had done any research at all on this subject and other people who would have insight into uh, what was going on. So that was the genesis of it. And I must say that uh, everyone who came, and there was about 25 people, said they really had no understanding that the problem was as deep and as broad as it actually is.
1: Well, you know, we at the WellMed Charitable Foundation, we operate caregiver Resource centers for family caregivers And so, you know, the idea And I think your your case study In the paper itself it Hits it right on the head Where you have um, a person in the hospital And home health is offered And then the patient says Because we're listening to what the patient wants The yeah. patient says Oh no, my wife or my husband Or my daughter <laughs> or somebody I don't need any home health Because I have a family person They They're, they're going to take care of me oh, right, And then they exactly. close the book Okay decline yeah. clunk right and then the poor family members like what what do i have to do what what did you turn <laughs> down or they'll come into our office all forlorn oh no you know they turned it down my husband turned down the help he didn't want he didn't want a stranger in the home
3: yes so so we tried to find out carol from what um evidence there is, and there's not a whole lot, but there are a few studies. And one of the people who had done the research, uh, Kathy Bowles, who is uh, both at Visiting Nurse Service of New York and at the uh, University of Pennsylvania Nursing School, she had done the most recent research. And what we, what evidence there is is that there is no single answer. Yes, the response may be I don't need anyone. My wife will take care of me. But behind that, there are a lot of different um, motivations. And so the primary one, I would think, is um, it's. I'm afraid of losing my independence. If I say I need help, that's the beginning of the end. They're going to put me in a nursing home. They're going to do all sorts of things. So it's kind of forestalling what... Um, what the outcome might be. But I also think that it's not just the way the patients respond. I do think that there's something to be learned, we don't know it yet, about how this service is offered. And whether the people who are offering it are making it clear why the person needs it, what benefit it will be, how it will help both the patient and the caregiver by having someone really explain a couple of times you know how to do things, so we don't know where the where the balance lies, but it is the other um, it is a problem because the other part of what uh, Kathy Bowles found was that patients who refuse home health care are more likely
1: to be readmitted to the hospital yeah, of course. Okay. Right. That. <laughs> right. And even if they're younger and in better health, but if they That's refuse it, right. they still have the greater chance of going right. back to the hospital, which younger folks probably aren't even thinking about because right. yeah, they're so right. used to being, not, you know, not needing help. Now,
0: we had a sample of that in my own family. My uh, dad had uh, Alzheimer's uh, dementia, and my mother was caring for him both at the time. Uh, in their 80s, and uh, I was running Jewish family service in San Antonio, and I called my counterpart in Cleveland and said, hey, you know, my mom could really use some help, meals on wheels, and, you know, maybe, uh, you know, someone to come in and, and help them out once a week. And so they went out, they knocked on the door, I told my mom this was going to happen, and what do you think my mother said? Yeah. <laughs> she said, you know, why don't you go tell, help people who really need the help? We're, oh, we're, we're fine oh, here.
3: Oh, oh. Turned it down. Yeah. I, I I think there there is something perhaps and I'm speculating here, that there is something in the generational response in that there's some stigma associated with Accepting health when you've been independent and you've worked hard, and you know you've raised a family, and I don't know what all the things that people do, sure. and then all of a sudden you're in you're in a vulnerable position, and people don't like that, and so, but usually, but there is the, there is the difference. I think often a difference between what the patient says and what the caregiver might say if the if If the question were posed to them in a
1: different way. If they were actually asked, "Well, is there confusion?" I mean, so when we define home health, are we talking about having a nurse come in? Are we talking about somebody coming in and doing chore services? What are we talking? Services, yeah. So, what are we talking about?
3: Well, that's a that's a very good question, and I think that. Is one of the um, the problems is that health home care means different things to different people, and um, it's a confusing sector of the of the healthcare world, uh, even even for professionals who are not you know directly involved. So home health care is a medicare benefit um for which the eligibility requirements are are fairly steep so what you you cast the hoops and you say yes you're eligible and that's and for a nurse i mean no. that usually
1: involves right. at least having a, maybe more than a nurse but you're going to get it, a nurse with that yeah
3: it, it depends on needing a skilled service which could be a nurse usually as a nurse but it could be a physical therapist right. it could be a speech therapist it's a Professional, and then there may be an associated uh, home care aide, home health aide, who does personal care and some of the other kinds of, of 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 services. And then there's this whole other world of what is called in-home caregivers, which are basically um, private um, companies that provide non-medical care. So they're companions. They're they can do some chores and other sorts of things, but that's all not covered by insurance. Now we're
0: talking with uh, Carol Levine, who is the director of United Hospital Fund's Families and Healthcare Project. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zernial. New report out talking about refusal of service—the kind of thing we are talking about now. You hear Caregiver SOS on air at nine thirty a.m. The answer.
1: So um, in the report, you mentioned that there's a new regulation that um, may be coming out. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the federal home health care conditions of participation? Um, and, and where are we and where are we not yet? <laughs>
3: uh, the conditions of participation um, is, is a proposed rule that would um really strengthen the um requirements of of providing support and to family caregivers and would um, include them in in discharge planning so that the um, home health care uh, referral would be more. More explained and more, more carefully explained, and, and questions could be answered and so forth. So it would presumably alleviate some of the anxiety. Now, where it is um, is anyone's guess. I think there, it it is it has never been withdrawn. It has never been formalized. So it has uh, uh, another several months. Um, to last, but uh, so if know, they don't it, issue
1: rules and, and say it's coming in 2018. If the Trump administration, you right. know, if that's a, a regulation that they wish to go away, it will right. just die on the vine.
3: Right, it will die on the vine. So, um, the interesting thing is that even without it being um, formalized, um, a number of hospitals have already started implementing some of the requirements because they make sense. And they think it will help them in their in their pre- uh, prevention of um, pre- preventable um, dis- uh, readmission. So it's it's not in vain, but it certainly would be helpful if it ever got <laughs> if it ever got finally approved. We're going to come I, right. Uh, I wouldn't count on it. We're
0: going to come right back to you right here on nine thirty a.m. The answer. I'm Ron Aaron, and uh, while it'd be tempting to get into the politics of all this, there's just no way to know what's going to happen. So we're going to. Leave we'll that alone. We'll just
1: let that go to, to that fate go. and the lobbyists.
0: That's Carol Zerniel. I'm Ron Aaron. Thanks for joining us on Caregiver SOS on air, talking with Carol Levine. We're talking about an interesting phenomenon that uh, has led some folks who probably could use the help and who are entitled to the help under Medicare rules to refuse Healthcare Services at Home and How and Why That Happens. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel, and with us on our caregiver SOS on-air hotline is Carol Levine, directs the United Hospital Fund's Families and Healthcare Project, has been involved in these issues for many, many years. Just a year ago, she was named one of the top 50 2016 influencers in aging by Next Avenue, and we're delighted, Carol, to have a chance to get a peek into why folks who could certainly benefit from these services won't mean out-of-pocket expenses for them or turning them down? You know,
3: one of the things, Ron and, and Carol, that um, I think would help is um, for families to understand ahead of time when there is an older person or a person with a chronic illness uh, what, what the different kinds of home care are. Uh, what the costs might be, if there are costs, sure. and and what they el- would be eligible for. So it doesn't come at you all at once, and it's hard to sort out, and you don't know the different agencies in your community. So then you're somewhat prepared it is something that you can research it is something that you can find out about and then forget about it until the real need arises and then it's not such a overwhelming it's kind of scary you know yes it's a little scary who is that coming when are they going to come what am i what do i have to do you know that kind of stuff so i think that would help a lot i also think it would help a lot if the hospital staff did a really good job of explaining what why this is necessary or important and what it really means. And um, it's it's somehow um, paradoxical to me that nurses are among the most trusted professionals in the United States. I mean, we see that all the time. And yet, in this case, maybe people don't understand that they're going to get a nurse, or they don't know who is coming. I I don't know what it is, but it seems an odd thing that they would reject that that particular service.
1: Yeah, you know, one of the, having had relatives in the hospital over the last few years, you know, the discharge plan is really this uncomfortable, long process that happens you know you've been in the hospital they tell you you're going to get to go home as soon as you're discharged and then you wait
0: hours for
1: somebody to show up and all often it's someone you've
0: never seen before
1: yeah it's a totally different person you haven't had any interaction with that person (laughs) you want to you know your loved one wants to get out of there let's just get this over with let's just go 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 Um, and you're just feeling desperate and that's when they're trying to talk to you about home health or anything else anything and it's really right. it's really bad timing i mean the discharge planning in the hospital no offense that maybe there are hospitals that do it well my own experience at discharge has been pretty chaotic just show me where to sign it's and we like, you know hurry up and wait or <laughs> right. wait 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 and hurry up and get out right. of here why why are you still here
3: <laughs> right, exactly. We need this bed, but meanwhile nobody's come to to you just have to sign some papers.
1: <laughs> right. Right. And then it's a a, a yeah. ream of papers and and there's so many <laughs> things going on, those last notes and the medications, and oh by the way do you want home health yes or no? Um it's it's I can
0: see where some of
1: this would fall through the cracks.
0: Sounds like another paper from Carol.
3: <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I I I've, I've been working with a number of groups who are trying to um, improve the discharge planning process by starting it early, by keeping people up to date um, as to what's going on, so that it doesn't all come at you at the very end. I've had relatives in the hospital recently too, and and in both cases, these were you know younger people, not 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 really old or older, and they had to ask, and there was. In both cases, a necessity for home health, and they had to ask about it. Oh, yeah, let me ask a social worker about that, rather than it being a proactive. It being offered. Um, yes, exactly. So,
1: well, and um, I was I was interested because in your report you talked about that, you know, the new thing is accountable care organizations where organizations are working together to coordinate care from home to hospital to primary care, and the way that they're saving money has been in not offering home health (laughs) services, even though that that has a poor outcome. I I
3: know. It's short-sighted. And, you know, maybe this, uh, we would hope this report at least open some people's eyes to the fact this is frankly i think this has been an underground issue that doesn't get talked about other than this kind of rolling your eyes Uh, so we really need to know a lot more i hope that we can do some some further research and really try to identify what actually do is the process of talking about home health care from the, from the discharge planner side and what are people hearing because what they're being told may not be what they're hearing and there's you know there is some um, I think there's a lack of trust in, in some ways of, oh, I don't know why would I want this person and, it, and besides if, if I'm better you're sending me home I must be pretty nearly better (laughs) without without realizing (laughs) that we
1: you know we (laughs) send people home um you know much sooner now uh, than than and and it's good you don't want to hang around and get hospital infections right um but but i was thinking about you know even if we had a perfect process let's say they've explained it well um we've all agreed we're going to do the home health and then the day the home health care worker arrives there's your mom and she says nope i don't want you here and, and, and we've, we've done all the planning, and then we're derailed at the last minute. That's that not
3: unusual. Happens. that happens. and um and you know, you're kind of stuck because as a caregiver, you're kind of stuck because it's it's a service that is in your home, which is a different thing from something in the doctor's office or a hospital where they're in charge, you're in your home, so you're in charge. You don't have to have it, somebody come in. So it's really a question of trying to get to the bottom of what's going on in people's heads when they're refusing it and what what are they denying about their own vulnerabilities and why? how can we help them understand that, to to some degree this is this is a way to help you get better. This is not a way to say you're going to get worse.
0: <laughs> She's Carol <laughs> Levine. She's Carol Levine who directs the United Hospital Fund's Families and Healthcare Project. I'm Ron Aaron along with Carol Zerniel on Caregiver SOS on air. For those of you who just joined, joined us, uh, you're listening on 930 AM The Answer. H- how much paranoia plays into this as well? Because as folks age, some do develop uh, at least a touch of paranoia.
3: I I think that that may be a, may be a partial reason, um, and I think that there's also, you know, people read then um, the news stories about egregious examples of abuse or neglect, or and that maybe sticks in their mind, and they think, well, I don't want this because something bad is going to happen. as. as the reality is that these are terrible but isolated instances and that I think maybe it would even help if the family caregiver said, you know, I'm, not, I'm going to be here when the nurse comes. I'm going to be here for the first few times the home care aide comes, so you're not going to be alone. I will talk to them, and I will make sure they understand that, you know, I'm in, I'm going to be the one in, that's monitoring this service so that the their older person doesn't feel totally abandoned to the care of someone they've never seen before, um, maybe that would help
0: in some cases. That's a good point.
1: Well, And I think it would. I can remember back in the day when I was running an Alzheimer's disease program in Florida and we would try to help caregivers accept respite. No, no, no. I don't need any help. I'm fine. Um, and so I would say, well, how about if I come over with the respite worker and we'll just introduce her um, and mm-hmm. I'll stay with her and you just go, you don't even have to leave the house. We're we're just gonna come over for an hour, mm-hmm. um, and and I would hang out with the worker for an hour and you know, lo and behold the, the caregiver would say, Well, you know, is it okay if I go run an errand? I'm just gonna go get some milk. Oh yeah, that's fine. I'll stay here with my worker and we'll be fine. And so after we gave the one hour, usually it was, Well, do you think you could come longer next time?
2: <laughs> you know, that
1: even that little thirty minute grocery run without the other person was was pretty nice. Um, and so some I think that you're you know you're you're on to something either um, you know, having somebody stay, make sure that caregiver, you're not left alone. And the other is, wouldn't it be nice, I know nobody has the time, if that home health worker could meet the family in the hospital and yeah. say, hi, I'm Carol, I'm going to be coming to your home once you uh, get home, and I look forward to seeing you there, if they could make a run through the hospital and meet their clients ahead of time.
3: Well, you know, that's very interesting Carol because I am one of the few, I think I'm one of the few family caregivers who actually insisted on meeting the um people who were going to come to my home to help take care of my husband, not because I was scared of, you know, something bad was going to happen, but I wanted to make sure they could actually, he was totally disabled, quadriplegic, brain injury, I wanted to make sure they could actually do the job, and Uh, The home care agency said, well, we don't do that. I said, well, you're going to do it this
1: time. (laughs) Yes, surprise. (laughs) Well, I think that's really important. And maybe, you know, maybe as um, the next generation we get more tech savvy, even FaceTiming, you know, being able to Skype or see that person before they come to the home so that you have a face-to-face, quote-unquote, conversation might also help make it more acceptable.
3: I think that's great, a great idea. Anything to... Make it more comfortable. Not make it seem like a huge um, imposition. Make it seem far more um, on, a, on a, a friendly basis rather than you know something being pushed on you. I think I, I like the idea of the FaceTime
0: and all of that. You know, it's also a role that the uh, either the PCP primary care physician or uh, the hospitalist, if there is one involved, can help with as well uh, in facilitating an understanding that this will really help your loved one, and you recover. Mm
3: -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. Unfortunately, I think a lot of the community physicians are not as knowledgeable about home health as they could be because they can also refer. uh, It doesn't have to be through the hospital. They can also refer a patient for home health care. So it's a process, and, you know, there's paperwork, and there's interviewing and so forth, but it can be done. The other place that was mentioned a lot in our roundtable was emergency departments because that people are sent home from emergency departments and they really need someone at home. They don't need necessarily to be admitted to the hospital, but they need someone to go, be come to the home. And yet, um, that's a uh, that's a hard thing to get uh, to get across.
1: Well, my my older son has just finished uh, his residency. He's a full fledged emergency oh. department doc, and he's coming to town here next week. So I will be quizzing him what okay. he knows about home health <laughs> and making right. that. Ref- just
0: his luck, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right.
1: You know, I've already threatened to beat him up on several issues. On I me, mean, have to add this to the list. He's going to be just darn perfect by the end of this. <laughs> and
0: he did not well. choose to go into gerontology.
1: <laughs> no, he chose emergency room. Right. But still gives me a lot of room for oh, offering yeah. advice. <laughs>
3: yeah, absolutely. Yeah. In fact, well, congratulations what, what, for him, and and I'm sure he will be able to handle
0: it. <laughs> well, Carol Levine, we are flat out of time, if folks. Oh. Want to read more about well this. To,
1: to read this report or any of the publications I just have to add that United Hospital Fund all of your your reports and and how-to guides for both professional caregivers health care companies and family caregivers you've got a quite a library of, of things to offer.
3: Well, thank you very much. We do, and we hope people will look at them. This report is on the United Hospital Fund website, and our family caregiver guides are on the Next Step in Care website. We're the same organization, but we have
0: two different websites. So nextstepincare.org for the family caregiver right. stuff. If
1: you Google Carol Levine, you will find her, you know, <laughs> like all that. of your work, and you can pick whichever site has it. Carol, okay. thank you. and Thank you, Ron, and thank you, Carol.
0: We look forward to having you on again. You take care. Bye-bye. Carol Bye. Levine at United Hospital Funds Families and Healthcare Project. I'm Ron Aaron with Carol Zerniel. Up next, Take 10 with Dr. Jamie Heisman on Caregiver SOS on air. It's hard to believe, but this all began in the year 2010.
2: Has it really been that long that we've Dr. been together? Dr. Robin
0: Eikoff, Ron Aaron, WellMed Radio.
2: What a terrific ride it's been.
0: And since then, and continuing, we have talked about everything.
2: We've talked about medical issues, we've talked about legal issues, end-of-life issues, and the list goes on.
0: You name a disease, and we've covered it with answers for people who have it, aimed primarily at seniors and their loved ones.
2: Seniors and caregivers and grandchildren and on and on. So why do you like doing radio? Well, I love spending time with you, Ron. Oh, thank you. That's one of my favorite parts. Well, I appreciate. But that. I like educating and I like educating patients and family members. There's so many things that we can do with this outreach.
0: So listen to Well Med Radio and get healthy, Ron Aaron, Doctor Robin Eichoff. We come to you Sunday afternoons at five p.m. on nine thirty a.m. The Answer thank you for being with us right here on caregiver sos on air i'm ron aaron and dr jamie heisman joins us now for take 10 a nationally known psychotherapist expert in a variety of fields, including caregiving and addictions. Carol Zerniel, our co-host, is here as well. And I'm a little anxious about this topic, Carol.
1: Well, I can understand your anxiety because that is the topic, anxiety. Um, So, Jamie, we have talked in the past about depression and how prevalent it is among older people. You know, the suicide rate uh, for older people, older men in particular, is very high. But um, a topic that I saw in the My Medicare Matters materials, My Medicare Matters is a program from the National Council on the Aging, and they recently released a very good handout on anxiety. And, you know, that's not something that you hear a lot about, but I have a feeling that anxiety is almost as common as depression. So what's the difference between anxiety and depression, and why are they sending out publications about anxiety disorders?
4: Well, they're kissing cousins for sure. I mean, anxiety usually accompanies depression, and depression is a feeling of, of out of control in some ways because um, basically, as we say, the definition of anxiety is somewhat anger turned inward. It's caregivers, you understand, and, and people in general. They We all live with a certain amount of anxiety, and, and it's really caused by the fear of the unknown. You know, depression is a little bit different because depression could be a biochemical depression, a situational depression. It puts us in a very vulnerable state where anxiety then takes over. And since health issues can change without warning, caregivers, I think, as well as, as, well as the care, the people that take care of, live with higher than normal levels of anxiety. And, and the anxiety actually can be contagious.
1: It can be contagious. What does that mean?
4: Well, let's face it. I mean, if you're ever around somebody who is more anxious than others, you will know it. You will feel the energy. Uh, they may make you more anxious. I mean, we just go back to our school rooms, you know, our classrooms when we were young kids and diagnosed with ADP and ADHD. If you had a child or a student next to you and you, you saw their leg moving a lot or they got up, they moved a lot, um, they were not really attentive, um, it makes everybody a bit more anxious, uh, ADD was interesting, and uh, which also mirrors obsessive compulsive disorder for us psychologists, because it's usually the afflicted or the person who has it doesn't feel it at all. It's really the people around them that's driven crazy.
0: Interesting. I, I, when I taught for a while, especially seventh grade kids, I, I had occasionally, and usually they were the boys, but not always, kids who would rock their their chairs. Just back and right. forth, back and forth, back and forth. And quietly, I would say to myself, hmm, what are the odds he's going to fall over and break his neck, and will I be liable? And they just never right, right. they never stop.
4: No, it's not intentional. No, but of course your not. Body language, can, but body language can transfer anxiety. And uh, when a caregiver feels anxiety, and a caree who may have a chronic or terminal or in an episodic condition, they're already in the world of fear and anxiety. They already have a fear of the unknown. So when a caregiver gets anxious, believe me, it can and will become contagious.
1: Well, I just have to ask, Ron, did any of them ever fall and break their neck?
4: They didn't break their neck, but
1: (laughs) one fell over. Well, I'm sure they did. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I can remember.
4: did you put, did you? Did you push the desk? No, I'm sorry. I know you too wrong. well. I, mean, no, I did
0: not do that.
1: I remember John Moyer um, picked up my desk with his feet. He was the big guy that sat behind me in class, in oh, science wow. class. He picked up my desk and was rocking it for me, and then he tipped <laughs> it back, and it I catapulted out of the desk right before it hit the ground, so I didn't crash. But then I got in trouble. So, what's that about? You know, that made me feel
4: you'll be hearing from John Moyers' attorney too so you get some right now
0: truth yeah. is a defense
1: <laughs> yeah really yeah, he i'm sure i'm sure
4: he
0: remembers that incident well if you're anxious uh, it seems like a silly question but do you know you're anxious
4: no not really i mean people will reflect it back to you and the care receiver uh, you can see their behavior. They may not reflect it back, but they may be more anxious and worried than, than normal. Well, uh, because the caregiver often is not aware of the anxiety uh, over the over the caregiver job. In fact, you know we repress a lot of it, Ron, and that's one of the reasons why our medical, as caregivers, I say our medical condition usually suffers. You know, so if we're not taking care of ourselves, we're anxious. Uh, we tend to isolate and we tend to also uh, stuff it, if you will. And when we stuff it, that's certainly no help to our cardiac issues, pulmonary issues, or any of the disease processes that may be going on within us. That's often why caregivers literally, as Carol knows too well, passes before their loved ones.
1: Well, so anxiety, let's talk about a little bit about anxiety and dementia sure. in a dementia patient. So if you, it, this is not, not uncommon either, is that you've got somebody who has dementia, they don't know what's going on, they're not understanding and processing correctly everything that's going around them, and their anxiety goes up, and you know, what does that manifest? What does that look like? How would I as a caregiver know that my loved one has anxiety if they can't tell me that they're feeling fear?
4: Well, you'll see they they can't stick to a routine. They won't be compliant. They'll probably be forgetting more. Um, you know, these are the things that you hear more arguments along with dementia between the caree and the caregiver. To me, you know, the, the biggest issue of of denial, or let's say the the biggest antidote to denial, is acceptance. And and the biggest, let's say, remedy to denial to the person you're describing, Carol, is the proper milieu, the proper environment, the proper social setting where it's actually equipped so that they feel they have two feet on the ground and they don't have to blow in the wind, both with the disease process and with a very anxious caregiver.
0: He's Dr. Jamie Heisman. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. You're listening to Take 10 on Caregiver SOS on air on 930 a.m. The Answer.
1: So, there are some disorders that are associated with anxiety, like panic disorder or obsessive compulsive disorder. So, mm-hmm. those are the, that the far end of the spectrum on the anxiety scale. Mm. Is, is that something? Yes. No, or not so or,
4: not so far in. Not Go so ahead. far.
1: No, no, not so far. No, well,
4: not so far in because caregivers really, you know, when they're out of control, you've heard me say this often, they become most controlling in their environment, and it's almost mirrors an obsessive, an OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder for them to stay in control. So it doesn't take much for that control issues to kick in and make the caree even more anxious.
1: Ah, okay. So I was about to ask: Is this? You know, is it possible for people to go through life and not develop these until they become a caregiver or until, you know, they reach old age? I mean, can you develop these kinds of behavioral health issues late in life?
4: Yes, I have seen people who have actually lived fairly healthy, normal, two feet on the ground lives with little or no anxiety and then had become a caregiver and then the unknown hits them, their mortality hits them, the feeling of isolation or being alone without the loved one hits them, and all of a sudden they enter in a whole other world where... Literally, chemistry of the body switches, cortisol starts, you know, happening even more and more, and they become anxious. Now, certainly, you're more predisposed if you have not taken care of mental health issues um, as an adult or as a child, and and so you may be anxious and you may just be greater you know on the scale more anxious with a loved one but I have seen it flip from zero to 100 as well when somebody becomes a caregiver
1: well and and then sometimes does anxiety would that would be where some of the paranoias come from where all of a sudden you're suspecting everybody is either out to you know see you fail or out to get you or you know is that an anxiety disorder
4: well, it is part of anxiety, yes, you do. Your world gets a lot smaller, and your conspiracy theories about yourself get a lot greater. So if, if your own self-esteem is obviously feeling impacted or you're feeling out of control, um, no doubt uh, you know, the anxiety will be kicking in to a greater degree. Now, there's a lot of ways to, to stop the anxiety. I mean, when you, to accept it, like journaling, like meditating, like forgiving yourself. You know, I think breathing, you know, Dr. Weil, I guess once heard me say doing the three, four, seven, you know, breathing in to the count of three or four, holding it for seven seconds and blowing out for eight seconds is a way to immediately remedy an anxiety or at least to reduce it.
1: But so if somebody, if, if we've got anxiety that is, has turned into like some obsessive compulsive disorder or it's, it's just going on and on and on, is this something, you know, that requires an intervention? And we've got one minute left.
4: I do believe it does. And I think the family around should do that. And this is where, again, I believe a third party or let's not say even a third party, a safe. Space, You know, nine-by-12 room, whether it's a support group, whether it's with a therapist, uh, really comes in. Because you can try to keep with a the therapist or, or facilitate your environment calm and pleasant. You can learn how to stick to a, a routine. Uh, you can make sure the person that you're caring for is a lot of, like, attention one-on-one with somebody. I think your arguing will diminish. Uh, when you treat yourself and, and the whole person, uh, I do think you can really uh, not beat the anxiety, but certainly reduce it to a level that's manageable.
0: Cool. Hey, thanks. That worked out really well. Dr. Jamie Heisman, thank you. Carol Zorniel, I'm Ron Aaron. Caregiver SOS on air comes to you 6 p.m. Sundays on 930 a.m. The Answer. Podcasts of all of our shows are available as well. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS on air. Presented by the Wellmed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net and join your hosts Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel for another edition of Caregiver SOS on Air on 9.30 a.m. The answer.